Hey, what's going on? I'm Jeremy Lee, and you are listening to Reading the Play, the show where athletes share their story and experiences about life and sports. Additionally, we'll break down some key decisions they made so that you can get a better understanding of their journey and where they are today. In Justin's case, there's probably about three or four crucial decisions that really changed the trajectory of his career. So you won't want to miss out on those. Subscribe to this podcast so that you can hear other great stories by athletes, and you can also find them on sportcalgary.ca. For more content, we're on Facebook, Instagram, follow along at Reading the Play, or myself at Legacy. In this episode, we'll sit down with three-time Canadian Olympic bobsledder and 2018 gold medalist Justin Cripps. Born in Hawaii, Justin split time during his childhood between the Big Island and Summerland, BC. He had a dream to represent Canada and wear the maple leaf at the Olympics, and he thought at first it would be on the track during the Summer Olympics. However, out of nowhere came the opportunity to represent Canada on the frozen track in a bobsled. I really appreciate Justin taking the time to sit down and chat about everything from his introduction to the sport, what it's like flying down a track at 140 kilometers an hour, his transition from brakeman to pilot, and and we even chat about some of his favorite pieces from the Olympic kits that he'd had to walk into the opening ceremonies in. So we get to everything in this podcast. You won't want to miss out. Well, it looks like Justin's all warmed up on the hot seat. Let's get it. Excited to be on Story Island here today as we have Justin Cripps making an appearance. How are you doing, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I just want to jump right into it, mainly because I have a lot of questions about Hawaii for you. That's where you were born, um, on the Big Island, actually, right? Yeah, on the Big Island, down south, about 45 minutes south of Kona. And how long did you live there for? Um, So we actually went back and forth from there in the South Point to Summerland, BC, uh, for about 13 years. And then uh, once I was 13, we stayed in Summerland year-round for me to go to high school. Um, Actually, my dad still went over to Hawaii quite a bit. He would take like a lot of long breaks from the winter. (laughs) So he would still go quite a bit. But um, yeah, we mostly stayed in, in Canada after that. So before 13, though, how long would you stay in Hawaii at one point? Uh, we go almost exactly six months there, just under six months because um, my parents aren't American, so they can only be there for uh, right. 182 days or whatever. But So me and my brother were born over there, and we can stay as long as we want. But so they you have, have dual citizenship? Yeah. I actually have three. I have Australia as well. Really? So, yeah, my mom's Australian. So a question I had for you, just around being born in an, an exotic place. I actually have a similar story as well, born in California, but grew up in Canada. Yeah. How how often do you get that, well, why did you decide to leave? <laughs> well, other people ask me that all the time. Um, you know, for me, I, I love going back there, uh, and it, it always holds a special place in my heart for sure, especially uh, my parents' property there. It's this really cool, um, like, kind of remote five-acre with a little bungalow on it, and we've got, like, every fruit you can grow there and a big vegetable garden, and it's just a really cool spot. Um, but at the same time, like South Point, Big Island, you're 25 years old. What do you do? You know, like there's nothing to do for young people there. You either have to go work in a resort or a lot of the locals that I grew up with, um, go to California, like LA, get work, go to school. 
and then end up either going back and forth and retiring there or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of, it's a little bit tough to like spend your young adult years there, I think. Right. So you notice even a lot of your friends growing up and stuff, they would be leaving the Island too. Hey. Yeah. Like when I go back there, there's pretty much none of my friends are there every once in a while. Um, one, one friend who's like, uh, her family's friends with ours. She's there sometimes, but, um, she's mostly in California as well. So yeah, it's like everybody kind of leaves and then maybe comes back, but you sure miss the weather when you're in Calgary. (laughs) (laughs) Have you been to the pine tree cafe at all? No, I haven't. Okay. That's like my favorite spot on the big Island. Oh, really? It's like you turn right coming out from the airport onto the main highway there. It's just off to the left. Okay. It's near Costco or whatever, but near pine trees surf spot. There you go. (laughs) That's probably what's called that actually. (laughs) What's your favorite joint that you Um, always have to go visit when you go back? Super easy. Umeke's. Um, it's, it's like a pokey place in right in Kona. Um, I started going there like just after they opened up and it's unbelievable. Like if you're there in the morning, you see the fish being brought in like, right out of the water like it's it's steps to the marina where all the fishermen come in doesn't get better than that right no it's it's unreal and so you got this crazy fresh ahi tuna and like the portions are massive it's pretty cheap and they mix it up with all these different sauces like avocados and kind of sweet soy and stuff like that and it's so good you can get a ton of food for really cheap so do you even attempt to eat pokey when you're over here i i have but like it's just you know what it reminds me of is my dad, when we were growing up, um, when we were in Summerland, uh, we have kind of an orchard and, you know, I used to eat peaches and nectarines off the tree. And when I was moving away to university, he was like, don't bother buying this fruit at, at the supermarket. It's not the same. And he was totally right. And that's what I feel like poke here is compared to Emeke's over there. It's just like, it's not the real deal, you know? Right. And it, it can't be right. You got to fly the fish in or whatever. And it's just kind of, it's a bit different. What were some popular sports that you did growing up in Hawaii? In Hawaii, I didn't do a heck of a lot other than surfing. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's a real different vibe down south of the island. Like it's, it's all locals mostly. Yeah. It's not like the resort style kind of areas. It's pretty, it's pretty local. Like it's a lot of poverty and stuff. Hmm. Um, we didn't have any organized sports down there. We just have like some volunteers who had, like teach us how to play kickball and like we did play basketball for a bit. Um, but it's kind of like once you go to high school there and I would have gone to Pahala or Kona Wina, which is both pretty far. Then you start doing organized sports a bit more, but yeah, it was mostly surfing for me over there. You started playing sports then more when you had transitioned full time to Summerland in BC there. Hey. Yeah. And, and like, it was kind of a funny situation with school. We would try our best to start, the school year in Summerland, like even when I was in elementary school and still going back and forth, um, we'd try to do like September, October here and then send over the curriculum to Hawaii because the Canadian public school system is like significantly better than what we were getting in Hawaii. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So we do the work from, from back in Canada and then come home to like finish off with like the last month or two. Oh, okay. So I still like did some sports here and there. Like I did some track and field, um, in Canada and then like a little later. Yeah. Like when I was staying full time, I, I played like basketball, volleyball, did track tennis. I was on the snowboard team all of a sudden. Like <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But track is really what got you going. Hey. Yeah. Tracks like, so I, I started track when I was nine 
And it was after I watched Donovan Bailey win 196 yeah. um, in Atlanta. And I was just like, I thought it was so cool. Like it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen on TV. And I pretty much started track right after that. Like, and, and by started track, I mean sprinted down the like lanes in the orchard over and over racing my dad. But you took it seriously at that point. You're like, yeah, I was yeah. like, I was into it. And that's like, that's sort of when the, the whole Olympic dream started for me. And like, I wasn't necessarily sure it was going to be track. That's just what Donovan Bailey did. And I started doing, and, and I was a pretty quick kid. So, um, I, I followed along with track for quite a while. And you didn't need specific equipment or expensive equipment to play that sport either, right? Yeah. super easy. Like I could practice when I was in Hawaii too. Um, you know, you just need to run, right? Especially when you're a kid, like you can run barefoot. It doesn't matter. Like you just kind of training your little body to, to do those movements and stuff like that. And we actually ended up having a track team in Hawaii. I think my mom probably started it. Uh, and we had a few kids and we would run barefoot. Everybody would run barefoot because like the kids didn't have shoes. They had, they had like flip flops and that was it. And I didn't want to be like the only kid wearing shoes kind of thing. So <laughs> I wouldn't wear my shoes either. It was kind of crazy. Like if, if it was towards the end of my stay and I'd been there for like five months, it was all good. Like my feet were pretty tough. Yeah. But like we were running on cinder tracks barefoot. This is like gravel basically. Oh. <laughs> and like the locals and like me too, after being there for a while, like your feet get super tough. But yeah. like when I would be in Canada, like wearing my nice shoes all the time, like just, you know, your feet can't handle it. <laughs> so it was a bit of an adjustment there. Or maybe you tried riding barefoot when you're in Canada. You're like, this actually feels comfortable. Yeah. Did you ever do that? <laughs> it, you know what? You're pretty fast barefoot. Like, especially when you're small, cause grip's not such an issue. Cause you, you're not, you have to move so much weight. Um, yeah, you're like, you're pretty quick barefoot. Hmm. So then you started sprinting. When did you realize that, uh, that was something that you could do in post-secondary or were you even looking to do track and field in post-secondary? Yeah. I kind of realized that I, I might be like quite a bit faster than your average kid right about when I started. Cause we like in Summerland, we'd run on like a, you know, grass, like a soccer field. And then we basically didn't train on the rubber tracks at all. We went to, there's one in Penticton, which is like 15 minutes down the road. We went a couple times, but the coach ended up taking me down to Vancouver for the elementary school provincial championships. And so like goes by, um, grade or age, maybe I can't remember, but either way. Um, and I won like four events and I won like the 800, the 200, the four by 100 relay and like the 1500 or something like all over the place, but just like fast. And so, and my coach was like, man, like you're pretty good at this. You should, you know, you should actually like stick with it and and work at it. I was always really fast. Like kind of when you're a kid, like maybe you're developing faster than other people. So it's like not really necessarily fair. Um, and in high school, same thing. Like I was, every time I went down to provincials, I'd like win at least the hundred or the 200 or something. And I was just kind of always in that top one or two in basically the province. So uh, I ended up getting a, a scholarship to, to go run varsity track at Simon Fraser university and UBC as well. But I, I chose Simon Fraser's is better, better scholarship. I think I really like when I started high school and you start racing kind of kids from all over the province a lot more often, I kind of realized like I could probably get pretty good at this and, and, you know, go to school with it and, and that kind of thing, run, run varsity. 
were UBC and SFU the only two schools you were considering at the time because scholarships were on the table? Or were was there another part of you that was like, I might want to explore Div 1? Yeah, I looked at it. Um, actually, kind of my original plan was I wanted to go run at U of H, University of Hawaii. Turns out they don't have a men's track team. They only have a women's track at that time. Anyway, I'm not, I haven't checked recently, but... Um, Your mom should have started that one too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that would have been kind of cool and would have been a bit of a sweet spot too because I would have technically been an in-state athlete so it wouldn't have costed as much. And I probably could have got a scholarship. But I also looked at like big Div 1 schools like UCLA, um, USC, stuff like that. And that's when, that was the first time like a little bit of doubt crept into my mind about like how far I could take track because like my best time was like 10, nine, maybe coming out of high school. And I'd actually skipped a grade. So I was a year behind most people when I graduated. So I was like a little bit younger, but even still like my best time in my first year of university was 1079. And when I talked to UCLA and stuff like they, they got back to me and they were like, you know, you could, you could walk on and see how things go, but like realistically, you got to be like 10, four under to be okay. like on a scholarship. Right. And I started looking into like high school results down in the States and it's like, there's so many guys that are ridiculously fast. It's crazy. So yeah, then I was kind of like, might not actually be able to, you know, pull a Donovan Bailey here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so did you, uh, did you see that clip of that high school kid who ran a, a time, that was good enough to make an Olympic final. Yeah, I did. And I believe it because um, I don't know if you, if you know the name, but um, I ran against Mike Rogers when I was in university because he was in my school, SFU ran NAIA, which is like a, it's kind of like NCAA Div 2. Right. But you don't need grades to get in in the States, really. There's no like academic portion. So a lot of kids that don't have the grades do a couple years in the NAIA, try to get their grades up and then move to Div 1. Oh, I see. Okay. So this guy ran 10.1, like in first year university. And like he, he's gone to the Olympics, I think twice for the States now in the hundred meters. So that's the kind of level of, of athletes we were competing against. So it was kind of, you're getting really exposed to like what the, you know, what the really fast kids are doing. So then you make the decision to go to SFU. Was the dream still to be able to go to the Olympics and represent Canada? Yeah, definitely. It was and, and, you know, that's what it was. It was still a dream. I didn't really know how I would get there at that point. And I, I started university when I was 17. And, uh, like, again, I was, like, good. On, on, the, on our track team, I was really good. And, like, when we still ran in the States, I was really good. But when we went – or when I ran in Canada, I was still really good. But when we went to the States, it was kind of becoming clear to me that it was kind of like another level that I'm not at. And mm. may, maybe I'd get there, but it seemed like – at that point, it's all, it's mostly natural ability. You know, when your kids have only been training for a few years and uh, you start to question whether you could really get to that, that next level or that Olympic level. Is it also because the kids are bigger down in the States too? Like, I mean, you're not small by any means, but you know, you're looking at someone like Usain Bolt, who's like six, six or something like that. Yeah. It's really, it doesn't have that much to do with it. Like he's a bit of a exception to the rule. Like <laughs> most sprinters are between five eight and six feet pretty much um most of the guys that were whipping me down in the states were a lot smaller than i was so then when you talk about given ability what what are the intangibles like what what do you think was the gap it's just your genetics right i mean 
you take a look at the 100 meter final of the olympics and you get a pretty clear idea of <laughs> who has the genetic <laughs> advantage there it's uh it's not guys that look like me um but yeah, it's that, that's just what it is. It, it's really the, the amount of fast twitch muscle fibers you have. It's the composition uh-huh. of your muscles. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even then, you still had so much success at SFU, um, winning you know four by one hundred. What was it like running anchor for that team um, for you, holding down that position? And what was your perspective um, with the success that you had there? Um, it was really cool, you know. And and actually, that relay team, the four of us we're still really good friends to this day. Like we, we still meet up and, um, they, they still live in Vancouver. Um, but I fly in pretty often and, uh, just, you know, hang out with them, go to events or whatever. And we've been on some big trips too. Like we actually went to, um, three out of the four of us went to yacht week in Croatia for us went sailing around the nice Adriatic sea for a week. But yeah, we had a really strong bond and, and we were, you know, people talk about underdogs. We were like the underdog of all underdogs, like just a couple pasty white kids running in the deep South against all these guys that are way faster than us. But we had really good team chemistry, awesome exchanges. And we ended up, I think, you know, we got all American honors in the, in our league down there racing against pretty big time athletes. And it's cause our transitions were so good. Like if you, if you take flat hundred meter speed from all of our guys, like not even close to the guys on the other teams but um just great passes and we gave it our all it was kind of like none of us really had a shot in the individual events that we were entered in at the national championships down there but in the relay we did so we you know most people don't really focus on the relay we were like really really focusing on the relay this is our main event actually yeah and and like it it kind of it skewed well in my favor running anchor too because i was at the time, not a very good starter, but had naturally a really good top speed. So I'd get the baton near top speed and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd usually eat up a couple people on the way down the, the, the home stretch there. And, um, you know, that's part of the reason that I took a lot of pride in that, like helping us finish, you know, fifth instead of seventh or yeah. fourth instead of fifth or whatever, like making up some spots and, and yeah, it was, it was cool representing, you know, the only Canadian school in that league. And it was a great time. Bonding with your teammates, I think that's a big thing on the track, off the track. Do you think both are important in developing that relationship and maybe why your transitions were so good? Yeah, 100%. I mean, anytime you're doing a team sport, especially a small team like a relay team or, or like a bobsleigh team, it, it's really important to have that chemistry and, and have that trust in each other that everybody's going to do their job at 100% and give it their all and, and uh yeah, it brought us, it sure brought us a lot of success in the relay there. I mean, we, we ran way faster than anybody thought we would. Um, and, and it's definitely huge in bobsleigh as well. So then 2006 comes along, and that's a special year because that was really your introduction to, to bobsleigh. And how did that opportunity come about for you? It was super random. Um, I was running at a track meet in Vancouver for SFU, I'm pretty sure. Um, so there's also, I did like club meets in the summer, but... Uh, just this random dude came up to me after my hundred meter and I won the race and, uh, came up to me and he was like, Hey, um, I'm Matt Hindle from bobsleigh Canada. Have you ever thought about trying bobsleigh? And I was like, I was like even still a little bit out of breath from the race. And I was like, no, I, you know, I've never, never tried it. Like never thought about trying it. I don't even, I didn't even know how you could try it. Mm-hmm. Told him I'd seen cool runnings and thought it was cool. And <laughs> 
he laughed probably heard that a million times like i have now um <laughs> and yeah he basically said like we, you know we look for people with your kind of um like body type and speed and that kind of thing to get the sleds moving at the start and he invited me to come out to calgary and uh give it a shot in the ice house and just like they're running like a recruitment camp kind of thing there was like 10 of us there i think and uh it's almost like a bobsled boot camp like they're a lot easier on the athletes these days we were in the ice house like two hours sessions twice a day just like hammering pushes just so sore because you're doing this thing you've never done before totally um and then like ended the week with like an all-out push to see like kind of how your time stacks up against the current national team guys and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, mine was pretty good. So they, they invited me back. Um, basically said like, we, we'd like to have you out in Calgary, like at, by the end of September and like work in with this one team it was Lyndon Rush's team and, uh, hopefully make the Europa cup circuit, which is like a development circuit. And, and they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll send you guys to Europe for, most of the winter and you can learn the sport and Lyndon's trying to like kind of break off the, off the Europa cup circuit and onto the world cup. So there's a chance like if you guys are doing well, might move you up. And I was like, sold, let's do it. Like it's perfect timing. I was looking, like I said earlier, I, I was starting to realize I probably was never going to make the Olympics in track or I would work really hard for a really long time and maybe make the Olympics, but I, I wasn't going to win any medals or anything like that. And, uh, this, it provided me an opportunity to like sink my teeth and bear down into like a completely new sport. And one that it certainly seemed like I had a lot of potential in based on what they were telling me. And like, you never really know, like they want you to come out. They might tell you you're sweet and you're not because they just want you to, to try it. But, um, yeah. And, and such a great group of guys I met in Calgary, the mm-hmm. national team guys and stuff. So um at that stage in 06 you were what like 1920 somewhere in there um yeah i was 18 i want to say 19 yeah i was 19 okay and don't forget through all that you're still going to school at sfu yeah like i was enrolled in classes and everything like full-time and yeah i like i pulled out of all the classes in like august and uh switched like a few like some that i could to to distance and stuff like that just to like kind of keep it going a bit um and yeah like i say uh, you know it was a one year i wanted to just go full throttle and and like dive headfirst into it kind of be in the environment completely have it be the only thing on my plate except like a couple distance classes but um and that's what i did and and i made the decision that i would do that and then take a really good look at what I'd experienced and if I really liked it, if I thought I could be good at it and then make a decision whether to, you know, really commit to that or go back full time to school. What did those conversations look like with your parents when you told them, (laughs) Hey, I got introduced to this new sport. I'm going to give it a hundred percent go and school on the back burner for now. Yeah, it, it was I mean, it was it was interesting. It was kind of funny, but my parents are really easygoing, and they're they're very much like they want you to be happy, and they want you to kind of pursue just whatever brings you happiness and and satisfaction out of life. They don't, you know, my dad's worst nightmare probably is me sitting in an office for the next forty years doing a job I hate just to make money, and 
you know, just, just being raised in that environment. Like, you know, he, he never went to offices when I was growing up. He had, he had designed this life where like he lives in Hawaii in the winter and he lives in Summerland in the summer. He's essentially like self-employed and mostly just kind of does work on the land and with the fruit trees and stuff like that. And he's his own boss. There's nobody telling him what to do. And he is super happy, like the happiest guy I've ever met. And my mom is the happiest woman I've ever met. So they were kind of like, well, you know, if you, if you really think it's a good idea and you think this is something you want to do, then, you know, you should go for it. And that's my parents to a T like they, they kind of trust me to make those kind of decisions. Like even growing up when I was a kid, like I was always kind of like conscious about the ramifications of decisions and stuff like that. Like a funny story I always tell people is uh, we used to go camping for three weeks at a time up north, like on the North shore of the big Island and like just surf the whole time, whatever. And my parents would buy me and my brother, all of our treats for the whole three weeks on the first day. And so it would be like two big things of Oreos and like a flat of whatever pop you wanted. Sure. And I would like, I'd be like, okay, so we're here for 21 days and I've got 24 pops. So, you know, I can have one a day and then like on a few days I can have two. And then the same thing with the Oreos. My brother would just be like throwing up, like drinking so much pop and like cookies and stuff. And so my parents were kind of like, all right, like, you know, he's pretty responsible. Um, so, you know, when I made that decision, they, you know, trusted that it was something I really wanted to do and that. I was going to put in the work to make it happen if it was at all possible. That's a really good parenting technique. I might have to try that out on my kid. (laughs) So you were talking about how you were going to give it your all full throttle one year. How would you evaluate that first year in, in bobsleigh all in? And did you even know what you were evaluating at the time? I I did not really know what I was evaluating. Um, It was, Probably as far as like a single year goes, it was, I experienced like the most new things ever. Hmm. There was a lot to learn and a lot of really crazy experiences that I'd never had before and that you probably don't really get anywhere else. Like bobsledding itself going down the track is really insane. Like it doesn't look that crazy on TV but it's like really crazy. Yeah. And I was with a, like a good pilot. Like Lyndon is a great pilot now. Uh, at the time, he was only a few years in. He was still developing, right? Yeah, he was quite good on the tracks that he'd been on a lot. But we went to um, like pretty much, we got to Europe and like maybe a week or two later. This is like probably... November or something like that, 2006. Uh, we go and spend like three weeks at the gnarliest, most difficult, most dangerous track in the world. And one that he had a lot of problems with. Like, and Lyndon's really funny. He, he doesn't have that thing in your head where you think, if I tell this person this story, they might get scared and not want to do this with me. So he's showing me videos of like himself crashing super hard on this track, like while we're driving there. And I'm like, dude, (laughs) I'm like, well, what's changed since then? Like, yeah, he's like, well, we have a different coach, so it should be better. Man, it was not better. Like (laughs) we were just beating the crap out of ourselves. Like we would, we'd crash 
every second run and like the crashes there are rough like it's it's like being in a washing machine that's getting kicked down a hill while it's turned on like rapid spin cycle like it's just crazy and so it was kind of like i i honestly feel like that that year like i was 19 i was i was a boy when i went in there and i came out a man like it was it was rough and it's like a lot of work and um you you kind of like bobsleigh is a big boy sport and track is really cushy <laughs> like <laughs> i love track i think it's amazing it's it's such an awesome display of like genetic ability in a lot of cases and and obviously like super hard training and, and everything like that and athletic prowess but like you're never smashing into a 6g corner on your head yeah in a carbon fiber and steel death trap you know <laughs> it's just a whole different level and you know being sore and beat up is is like your normal state in bobsleigh and you you push through that it's not like nobody ever feels good in the season if you do you're probably not trying hard enough learning and dealing with the crashes and trying to normalize it would you say that would that was the biggest learning curve for you in that first year you know like crash crashing and getting going back to the top and getting in the sled again you know, I didn't really get it at the time. I didn't really understand the sport, but I, I'm a very willing person if, if I have any trust in somebody and, and Lyndon is, he's the easiest guy in the world to trust. Cause he is 100% honest. Even if he says like the worst thing at the worst possible time or showing you video crashes. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> you know, he says lots of like not politically correct things. Cause it's just, he just, he says what he thinks and he doesn't like filter it for the rest of the world. Sure. And so I like, I, I trusted him very early on and he's very honest. Like he, he said to me, like, I have a lot of trouble with this track. It's the hardest track in the world. And the reason we're here is to, you know, so I can get better at it so that later on in my career, like it's not a problem anymore. And I was like, okay. And world juniors were there that year and we were both juniors. So it was kind of, that was like a goal too. And I, I was going to be the one that raced with him too. Cause I was the only other junior on the, on that team. Um, so there's like a goal in mind and that sort of thing, but yeah, like just getting the crap beat out of you in a crash and then driving back up to the top and like just getting more and more nervous about going again and just like doing it anyway. You know, like I, I feel like that, that really taught me to like push through things, even when you don't feel like doing it. Would you say that you've kind of overcome that or are you still driving back to the top? are you still feeling those things after a crash? Yeah, I, I am, but it's different now, especially being a pilot. Cause I have the control, you know, the crash is my fault and you know, it's up to me to make a change and fix it. Being in the back of a bobsleigh is, a, is a, it's a very trusting thing. You know, you, you're putting all of your faith in the pilot legit does not matter what you do back there. You're not going to cause or fix a crash. Um, it's all the pilot at that point. And, uh, I, I much prefer having the control definitely. Um, but it, it, it really, I feel like it, it bonded me and Lyndon as well. Like at the time, like you're, you're going through something together and like the lows are low, but the highs are high too. Um, and we ended up getting called up to the world cup later that season. And, you know, it was his first time obviously. And, and my first time and like 
without even being a year in the sport, I'm racing on the World Cup, and all of a sudden there's it's really different. Hey, like bobsleigh circuits are super bare bones, and then you get to the World Cup, and it's like major sponsor stickers, and like mm. all the sleds look so cool and fast, and all the guys are these massive jacked dudes who are unbelievable athletes, and uh, you got TV cameras everywhere, and yeah, it's like a whole thing. And I, it, it was pretty cool to experience that together, and especially so early in my career. What was it like training for your first Olympics? 2010 was your first Olympics. Um, and you also had the chance to work with Pierre Luders. Yeah. Um, 2010 Olympics, it, it's it, it's a crazy story and like a series of emotions that I went through. Because I, I vividly remember when kind of my dream to become an Olympian like became a goal where I, it was really realistic because Lyndon, who had been in the sport for a while, we were driving in Calgary in his Subaru he used to have. And we had just finished the selection races in that first year. And he was really excited because we, we had like a really good start time. And it was the first time he'd had like a relatively fast crew. And he was like, boys, you know, like that was, that was awesome. Like we did such a good job today. You know, we're going to be going to Europe and stuff. And man, like if we, we could with this team, like even, you know, if they left us exactly the same, like we could make the Olympics in 2010. And I was like, we could make the Olympics in 2010. Like that's only four years away. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I only just started, like I got a lot of room to improve, but then it like, it seemed very realistic. And after Lyndon kind of explained to me how, how it works to make the Olympics in bobsleigh, I thought, you know, like I, I can do this, like, and I can, not only can I do it, but I can probably do some damage in this sport. Like I could, I could challenge for a medal. And you know, that, that goal came later once I started driving. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really, it was, it was really cool and very motivating to kind of have that, that goal set and it be very realistic and also very near in the future. So that belief for you came at the start of the quad then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was the, yeah, the first season of after the, the, the Torino Olympics. Yeah. Which is really helpful because then you're in the proper mindset and then you can get a full four years of training, right? Yeah, and it's actually, I mean, I didn't know this at the time, but looking back, like it's it's pretty good to come into the program at the start of a quad because you, you don't have to learn so fast. Like the Olympic year itself is really, really hard on people it's like especially well everybody in the sport people go crazy like mm. coaches make weird decisions sometimes athletes freak out there's just a lot of stress and it's always like that every year or every olympic every, year yeah yeah and uh yeah you don't really want to get thrown right into that because you don't know how to navigate it at that point and you don't know what like what helps you get selected to a team, especially as a brakeman, you know, it's not just your raw, like push time in the ice house. There's so much more to it. There's, um, kind of how you gel with the team, how durable you are. Like you slide a lot in the season and you need to be able to do that at a high level without getting hurt, you know, on and on over the season. And there's so many things. So coming in at the start of the quad, I think gave me the best chance possible to, to make that Olympic team in 2010. So who did you race with in 2010 there? Pierre Luders. Okay. And our crew was uh, Pierre, Jesse Lumsden, Neville Wright, and myself. Racing with Pierre, 
did you start picking up some things from him because he was the pilot? Yeah, I mean, right away, I mean, he he was kind of this, like, revered figure in the program. Like, he was the program at the time. There there weren't any successful female bobsledders yet. They'd only started in 2002, I think, was the first time women were in the, in the Olympics in uh, bobsleigh. And so it was like a very new program and they didn't have anybody winning medals at the time. So like Pierre was the guy and everybody looked up to him and he was like this almost like, like he was definitely on a pedestal. And when, when he wanted me on his team in my second year, I was like, wow, like I must have a lot of potential in this sport. Cause this guy, you know, he's Olympic gold medalist, Olympic silver medalist, world champion, you know, wide, widely considered to be, if not the best top three drivers ever kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, just his professionalism, the way he carried himself. Um, uh, I learned a lot from him and, and, uh, especially like w- once I started driving, he actually coached me for a couple of years and then I learned like a huge amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, going into the games, like great leader to have on your side he'd been to a lot of games he knows how it works he knew what was going to happen he knew people would go crazy and they did and it was just yeah it's nice to have him at the helm were you caught up with the stress yourself personally and all the squirreliness that could happen within the team or because it was your first olympics you're you just kind of overlooked everything and you just went in there with your glossy eyes or something like that yeah i feel like i was I was stressed a little bit at one point because I had been pushing four man breaks. That was my position from when I started up until the end of the third season leading into the game. So up to that point, I'd only ever pushed in that one spot. And now all of a sudden we've got Neville Wright coming out and he's uh, Olympic level hundred meter sprinter. And that spot I'm in is like the speed spot. They, the fastest guy goes there normally. And uh, so I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm pretty fast, but not as fast as this guy. And you also got to think about, and Pierre told me this, the sort of um, how other people view you as an athlete versus other people, hmm. coaches mainly, because they're the ones that make the teams. If you have two guys who are sprinters and both of them are four-man brakemen, just the simple fact that one ran faster in the hundred meter than the other one did. Even if you're testing results in the actual sport of bobsleigh are better, they might choose that guy just cause he has that image of being faster. Mm. So, but I like, you know, I, I credit myself as being somebody who plans well and thinks ahead. And so right when I got back, I started learning to push from both other sides of the sled and loading into any position because you know if you really multiply your chances if you do that because there's three spots for like brakemen push athletes in the sled so if you can only do one your chances are a third of what they are if you can do all three versatility justin exactly so (laughs) i became like a really good utility guy who could push from everywhere but not just like a guy who could push from everywhere a guy who was like high level from all the spots and it worked like so glad I did this because what ended up happening is we had five brakemen trying out essentially like earmarked for Pierre's team going into the Olympic season. Right. There's only three spots. 
So I raced on the brakes in the first race. I raced on the right in the second race. These are World Cups. Okay. And I raced on the left in the third race. Each race, somebody got sent home after that race. Like, literally sent home. Like, you're in the Olympic season. This is your, well, not everybody. It wasn't everybody's first shot. Some people had gone to the Olympics before. But, like, you're in this, like, pressure cooker. And you're getting a race that you, it really looks like it's a tryout. And it is. And when it didn't go well for somebody, they literally just had to pack their bags and go home, dream over, see you next year, maybe. And it's pretty savage, man. Yeah. I did really quite well in all the spots I raced in and I made the final cut and it was pretty last minute. Like our team wasn't really solidified until the second half of the season, um, which I'm learning is a little bit more common than I originally thought. That happens quite a bit now. Right, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was... I, I wouldn't say I was caught up in the stress because I had a pretty good, pretty good plan. Um, but, like, I could see it. You know, there's a lot of a lot of tears on the men's and women's side. A lot of... Yeah, a lot of emotions, a lot of stuff going on. And it's it's not an easy place to be and and be, like, feeling down on, on Bobsley Tour. But that's some good advice to up-and-coming brakemen. Make sure that you excel from either side of the sled. Yeah, exactly. Every spot. Kind of transitioning more now fully into the Olympics. Um, you're my second three-time Olympian on the podcast here. <laughs> so I'll ask you the same question. It's reserved for this exclusive club only. Um, because the other one was American. But for you, on the Canadian side, if you had to rank the three opening ceremony outfits that team Canada had put out that you had to walk into the stadium with most favorite to least favorite. Um, I think actually Pyeongchang was the best. Mm. Um, Vancouver was second and Sochi was third. The the thing with like Olympic kits is that 90% of the stuff you're never going to wear again largely because it's just like so ostentatious like you're not going to walk down the street wearing this like giant like they're meant to be ridiculous it's like you know speed skating costumes or something you know it's like so sparkly whatever the olympic opening ceremonies things you know they're like very canadian at like giant maple leaves and like whatever it's just not the kind of thing you walk around in yeah the word canada took up like a third of your body your yeah. upper upper half right yeah and there's sort of <laughs> these like weird layers that like because they want you to be able to take stuff off when you sit down in case it's like freezing cold or boiling hot in there um so it's like they're not all that practical and, and whatever but there's always a few like absolute gems in the kit and my favorite all-time piece is from vancouver um it's one of those like hand-knitted wool like cowichan jackets mm. and ours were actually knitted by real Haida Gwaii, um like native native uh native people and it was they're so cool wow. like and i still wear that to this day most of my olympic kit over the years is kind of like sitting in duffel bags <laughs> half of my parents place half at my place um but that one goes with me everywhere it's it's just such a cool piece in it and uh and from pyeongchang we had like i think overall the kit was the best we had these killer boots they're like they're called moon boots okay they're like super cushy and they're like bright red and they've got like the canadian olympic logo on them and 
because they're on your feet it's not like super ostentatious you know wearing the wearing like the olympic rings and the flag and stuff yeah yeah but they're also like these really cool weird looking boots that you know people notice them when you walk around in them so um you also had the uh lumberjack plaid uh jacket i believe right or like yeah. the flannel piece yeah that was pretty good too i like that um mine shrunk a bit though in the wash so it doesn't fit me perfect anymore but <laughs> but didn't you have a uh a plaid scarf or something like that in 2010 was that 2010 yeah we had a plaid scarf and we had a we had a winter vest that had plaid across the back and then canada that piece is actually pretty cool too 2010 was pretty special as well because I, that was the inception of those Canada mitts that you've seen everywhere. Like yeah. that's pretty special. Yeah, that was awesome. And you know, to this day, I'll never top walking into the opening ceremonies in Vancouver. Yeah, like it, it was absolutely unbelievable. Like the crowd went completely crazy, and it's actually like a weird, weird kind of side note. I got invited to the bid announcement in. 2003 i think it was where we actually where they 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 live streamed it into bc place and it was packed and like the ioc announced that vancouver won the bid i was invited because i was like a like national level like young up-and-coming track athlete nothing to do with winter sports but they were just like yeah you want to come like there's (laughs) sixty thousand seats and so i was actually there when they announced that vancouver won the bid and then I walked into the opening ceremonies seven years later. How crazy is that? Yeah, so crazy. And, and I'd never done a winter sport before other than, you know, snowboarding recreationally a little bit. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really cool moment. Um, and I was actually living in Vancouver at the time. And so it was like home, all my friends and family were, were around too. And was yeah. all your family able to come out to the Olympics then? Most of them. Yeah. 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 So it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty great. Were you able to pick out your parents in the stands or anything? Um, I didn't see them in Vancouver. I don't think, I think they were at the bottom. Bobsleigh, it's, uh, the seating's always kind of weird. It's, it's fun to be at the top, but it's better to be at the bottom, really. There's more like screens and stuff. Um, but yeah, I didn't, didn't see any of my family members at the top. Saw them at the bottom though, after, so that was cool. If you had to rank like your complete Olympic experience, what's top to bottom? Um, Pyeongchang's top for sure. I mean, winning Olympic gold medal is just, I mean, how do you top that? It was, it was absolutely incredible. And there was logistical hassles with, with the, with like the village and stuff. It was, but mostly cause it was just like ridiculously cold. Like it was so, so cold there. Um, but the food was pretty good. Not as good as Vancouver, but way better than Sochi. Sochi was just like it just wasn't a great experience to be honest and not just because i crashed in one of the races but um overall right yeah it was it was just like it wasn't finished like most of the kind of olympic area was wasn't done the food wasn't great it was just all like sitting out under hot plates for like hours and hours all the like security people had guns and stuff like all the time Mm -hmm. and like it just felt very militant and you didn't feel like welcome really Whereas in Korea, everybody you ran into was so happy to talk to an athlete and very welcoming and ultra polite. Um, so yeah, it was just very different. Like in Russia, it very much felt like they were welcoming the world in to stomp on all of them by winning everything. Hmm. And obviously they cheated. Yeah. 
but that was very much like even before I knew they were cheating, it was very much that attitude. Like, yeah, you're here, but like, we don't really want you here. We just want you here so we can show everybody we're better. Hmm. Um, versus like Korea was very welcoming, just felt like a, you know, kind of high level of sportsmanship and celebrating the world. Right. Yeah. It was just really good. I just really, really liked it. And Vancouver, Vancouver is like a a close second to Pyeongchang. And I mean, that's pretty huge because, you know, I, I won in Pyeongchang and that's impossible to beat, but in, in a lot of other ways, Vancouver was, it was just so cool having a, a home Olympics and competing in them. And it was just a great experience there. And then did your family come out to Sochi and to Pyeongchang as well, or? Uh, not Sochi, but, okay. um, Pyeongchang, my mom and two uncles came and like six of my high school friends. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It was, it was awesome having my mom there, um, you know, and, and winning the medal like that. It was it was a pretty cool experience to have her there and see her just, you know, be so proud and, and excited for it. Uh, before we get to 2018 and that awesome gold medal that we're just looking at here, um, any learning moments from Sochi, though? I know it wasn't a great experience, but... Yeah, track, big time. Yeah? Yeah. Like, I, I learned that I wasn't there yet. Like, I was having success that year. That was kind of the first year. It was the first year I won a medal on the World Cup circuit. And it was a gold, but it was like, I didn't know why I won, to be honest. Like I won that medal and I was really excited about it, but like, I didn't know why that race was different than any other race. And at the games too, I did really well in the two men. I was actually fighting for a medal and that, that was being the third ranked Canadian side. So I had kind of the third best equipment crew, all that stuff. But there was this one really difficult section of the track that I was just nailing and basically nobody else was except the the few guys in front of me and uh I kind of made a key mistake there too looking back like I sort of tried to make something happen out of like I was doing well because I was being consistent I was in fourth by a tenth of a second to third and my rationale at the time was the guy in front of me is like a veteran driver he's really good he doesn't make mistakes yeah if I do the exact same thing, I'm going to come forth by a 10th. So I tried to make something happen to like do something special to get ahead of him. Ended up messing up like badly and dropping a couple spots. And now, like if I had just held on to that spot and the Russians got disqualified, I would have had a bronze medal. But at the same time, like I feel like I would have been really mad getting a medal in the mail four or five years after the fact like to me it's about the race and what happened on the day and that's why i think cheating is so bad is because it, you even if you know they make up for it later and they strip the guy of the medal and you get it you missed out on everything you have the medal but like when you look at it it brings back like a bad memory instead mm-hmm. of a good memory yeah totally so you're really robbed of that whole thing um but yeah i learned that i just like wasn't really there yet and i and i was looking back on those races and being like well i don't know why those things happened and i realized that i was like things were happening to me i wasn't like in the driver's seat of my whole performance like i was trying hard but i realized later like there's more to it and i need to have like a better way to be prepared so that i can be more consistent more 
comfortable in those situations and everything like that. And so I think it was, it was a huge learning moment for me. Well, in between 2010 and 2014, you actually transitioned to become a pilot. Yeah. And you went to the driver school and everything. And uh, yeah. And, and so, you know, really I wasn't, I wasn't expected to do very well in Sochi. Like they didn't even send me to the international training weeks or anything. I had hardly any experience on the track. Um, the goal is to qualify, but we ended up just having a, a really good year, like a breakout year really for me, um, going from, you know, finishing outside the top 10 most of the time to, I think I kind of averaged like eight or ninth that year. Plus like I had like a sixth and a first, like just out of nowhere. And then finishing, uh, I guess now I came fourth at, at the games in two man, I finished six on the day. So that's how I remember it. But, um, I was like ready to break through, but I didn't fully understand like how you win races at that mm. point. It just sort of happened the one time. What was the biggest transition for you going from brakeman to pilot? Was it more of a mental thing or was it a physical thing? Um, definitely a mental thing. Um, in a couple different ways, like you're starting at the bottom again, basically, you know, you, you essentially restart when you're a pilot, um, right to the bottom. I had support though. Like I, you know, I had talked to the coaches about switching and, and Pierre Luters had, had told me he, he thought I should do it. And so they, they, to their credit, they laid out like a really solid development plan for me. Um, as far as, well, Pierre did mostly as far as like getting to all the tracks in the world within the first two years, pretty much. I think we missed one because that's the biggest thing. Like that's, that's what takes a long time is getting like proficient at all the tracks that you race on. Cause that's what you need to do to get like good overall rankings and, you know, win races consistently, you need to learn all of them. Um, so that kind of starting at the bottom thing, but I also had my teammate for the last three years, Pierre with me all the time on the road. So it was kind of, wasn't that bad. And I was just learning so much. It was, you know, I was, I was very focused, but also the, the mental aspect of driving itself, like it's so taxing on your brain, you're reacting so fast and your heart rate is super high all the time going down the track. And one of the biggest things is switching like your all out kind of beast mode push when you're a brakeman, you go, you know, full animal and you jump in and you can still be full animal and the sled doesn't matter. Like you just, you're going down, you're keeping your aerodynamic position. You don't have to like think or react really as a pilot. You have to go like beast mode and then get in and then like completely calm down, like Zen out, like get focused and, and you don't want to be all like hyped up and jittery. You want to be like, calm and flowing with the track and that kind of thing so that that took a bit of an adjustment and just wrapping my head around like pierre would say to me um you know that looked good in corner 15 uh we're going like 140 kilometers an hour 145 kilometers an hour and he'd be like it's pretty good you need to be like an inch lower and i'm like <laughs> like in what world can anybody have that level of precision going that fast and, you know, eventually, obviously you get it, it kind of slows down for you and you can do that. But yeah, it just seemed so like, so difficult to me at the time. And so it was, you know, it, it took a lot of practice, but yeah, definitely the, the mental aspect is the biggest transition. Did you feel yourself starting to calm down 
when that fourth person jumped into the sled or even further down the track? No, like, yeah, as soon as I get in, I would start to, I mean, you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. First corner comes pretty fast. Um, but I would just kind of like take a couple deep breaths and just like really try to like lock in my focus and, and, uh, yeah, it's, you got, you got to do it early. Like as soon as you leave the ice pretty much and you're jumping into your seat, you got to be like calming down and focusing on, on getting your driving lines good. Cause you mess up. It's actually like the, the, the higher up you are, like the first few corners are the most important. Cause if you lose your speed there, it just, you know, you never get it back through the track. Is there more pressure in the second run or in the first? Because in the second, you already know what time you need to, to make, make up potentially. Yeah. I think it very much depends on expectations and how the first run goes. So if you're coming into a race and people are expecting you to do really well, you're probably more nervous for the first run, especially when you're not used to that kind of stuff yet. The first time I was leading a race, I was so nervous. It was nuts because nobody ever had expected me to do well as a pilot. Right. It was basically like, Oh, you know, Crips is doing really well for like a first year, second year, third year, whatever pilot. Like, that's awesome. He's doing well. But then I'm leading a race and it's like, and they, one of the weird things is at a bobsay race, if you're leading, you hear your name over the loudspeaker every two seconds. Cause they constantly say like, uh, you know, like the German athlete is a 10th of a second behind the time of Justin Cripps. And so they say like, and each interval, they say that. So like saying your name, like over and over and over. And you're like, just reminding you that you're leading and the race. And subconsciously that kind of messes with you potentially. Yeah. Eh? And you can have other people coming up to you all the time being like, Hey man, like that was such an awesome run. Like so cool. You're leading the race. Like, you know, have a good second run. And even one of my buddies on the American team is really good. He, he was actually leading the overall standings. It was the last race of the year. He comes up to me and he's like, man, like you, you gotta, you gotta finish first. You gotta stay ahead of the Swiss guy. If you beat the Swiss guy, I end up first, but if he beats you, then I'm going to be second. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to do my best, man. So yeah, I feel like the second run, there's a lot of pressure if you're doing really well. Like if you're in a metal spot, there's a lot of pressure. If you messed up the first run, then you go into the second run feeling pretty free because you're probably going to have a bad result. It doesn't really matter. No what expectation. You do. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, it's definitely my, my mental performance coach said to me one time, it was later on in my career, but, um, he said, if you're, if your belief in what you can do is higher than the expectations on you, then you're in a sweet spot. And that's essentially always where you should be. Cause if people have high expectations for you and you're not really capable of doing it, that's kind of a, not a great spot for them to put you in. Um, but yeah, I think that's like, it's a good thing to kind of think of when you're going into a high pressure situation. Leading up to the 2018 Olympics, then yeah, your Olympic gold medal year. Uh, but prior to that, what did that look like for you in your world cup races and your preparation for that? Well, we were doing pretty bad in 2015 and 2016. And it was, it was really unclear who the top, driver was for in the men's program we had really we had two for a couple years and then and then a third who was kind of in there for the last couple years um battling for that top spot 
And that makes it difficult because it's hard to make, like, in a perfect world, you have, like, the A team and the B team, and it would be great if they're close, but you sure. really want to st stack your top team. Yeah. And we weren't really able to do that because it was the other pilot was the number one for the last couple of years. And then I sort of took that over at the Olympics, but he was still like ranked higher in the overall and that kind of thing. Um, and our equipment was getting outdated. So it was just like not great, but at the same time, like I was building this plan for myself and the teammates that I had, but they were changing a lot at the time. Um, but I was developing this plan of like everything. Like I was looking at absolutely everything. Like how can I, I felt like I was pretty good physically. Like my training was pretty solid, a really good coach. Um, and like nutrition, that stuff kind of stuff, all the physical aspects were pretty well taken care of. So I was looking like really into mental performance and also equipment and all of the things that I hadn't been thinking of leading into 2014. And, uh, I got lucky in a way, um, this organization B210 who helps out Canadian athletes. Um, I started working with them and I always kind of say like my first year working with them, I went from being an amateur to a pro. Um, cause it just, I learned so much from them. Like they, they're not afraid to ask you the hard questions. Like I was warned before I went into my first meeting with them. Like they're like, they're going to tell you exactly what they think about you as a person and as an athlete and like what you need to work on and they're not going to sugarcoat it i was like okay and like it wasn't really that bad like they didn't like tear me apart or anything but you know one of the first things the head guy said was who's your mental performance coach and i said well, i don't have one like you know i i don't really have like any issues with performing under pressure or anything like that and he's like I didn't ask you if you had any issues. I asked you who your mental performance coach is. He's like, who's your strength coach? I said, Quinn Sekulich. He's like, how long have you been working with him? I was like, nine years. He's like, how long have you been working with that mental performance coach? I said, well, I don't have one. He's like, so half your performance, you're not, you don't even work on. Wow. And I was like, wow. Like, cause I, you know, in, in my mind, it's kind of that stigma thing with mental health. Like I thought, you know, if you have a sports psych, it means, like you can't handle pressure yeah, or, something. or you have issues or something. Yeah. Right? It's totally not how it is. And so it turns out like they, um, kind of like require their athletes that they partner with to work with mental performance coaches. Cause they rightly so realize that it's like 50% of your performance. And, uh, so they set me up with somebody that they, they really like, and I got along with, and it really changed a lot. Like I, the way I approach everything, like he, he was like, well, when you won that race in Kunigsey, the 2014 Olympic year, like, what did you do different? Like, why did you win versus come 10th? And I was like, I have no idea. Like I, I drove down the track and I was in first, mm -hmm. like by a lot. I yeah. have no idea why, like it just happened. And he was like, okay, well, I want you to be very conscious of even in your training runs and in your race runs, like how you feel, like what's going on in your head. Like do just do a quick like check in, like is my mind kind of working really quick right now? Do I feel calm? Am I anxious? Like just make a, a note of it, even write it down if you want. And then start to look at how you drive 
under those different kind of situations. And I was like, oh, that's like, seems really smart. I've never really thought about that before, like about thinking about having a certain mental state when I go into a race. Mm -hmm. I, I go for a physical state, like I warm up and I do like the exact same thing every time. He's like, yeah, you need a mental like preparation thing. And the beauty with mental thing is that it is, you don't have to do it for an hour. You don't have to like your body, you need to warm up for like 45 minutes to an hour mental thing. Like the better you get at it, the shorter it is. Totally. And, uh, so that really helped a lot. And they also, you know, they were like in a perfect world, what sled would you have? What runners would you have? Who would your team be? And like you create this, this kind of all encompassing performance plan about how you're going to be successful. And then you kind of fill it in. Like, so maybe the national team provides this, this, and this, but they don't provide this or that. And then they'll step in and help. So it was really like the first time I ever realized that you really need to like map out what you're doing and then make it happen versus like I prepared very heavily physically, but not mentally at all. Mm -hmm. I never had any say or the resources to buy any equipment that I wanted. And that all kind of changed like at that time. So that was really a big transition time for me. And, and we, we started getting better. Equipment is always like a tough thing. It took us a, a few years till, till the pre-Olympic season, really to get the equipment that we, that we wanted. And, uh, yeah, we had like, we actually had a really rough year in 20, sort of like the 2016, 17 winter season. Right. Yeah. yeah. We were like, everything should have been going well. We had a new sled. We had like pretty good runners. I had a really good brakeman. I was driving really well. And like the times just weren't there. And there were some teams that were doing really well that were not very good. Like when you watch a bobsled race, you can see how people are driving, how fast they start and that kind of thing. And the results like really did not make sense at all. Right. And, and it was kind of the same the year before, but that year was a lot worse. And right away after the first race of the year, it was in Whistler and I came fifth and the coach was like, oh, it was a pretty good result. Like you drove really well. I was like, I should have been first in that race. Mm. Like I should have been first. Like, look at the way people drove. People are, Whistler's a really hard track, but it's our home track. So we're good on it. People are smashing walls, skidding sideways and just like picking up speed. And I'm like, there's the, there's like a, this runner rule, like it involves like sandpaper and like how much the runners are polished and all like the runners are the essentially like skis on the bottom of the right. side. Yeah. Um, so there's a rule around that. There's lots of rules around them, okay. but yeah, there was one in, in particular where, so like it used to be, they would, when your sled's all ready to go flipped upside down in like to call it park for me, same like formula one where all the work has to be done. And like the jury can inspect to see, okay. like, make sure everything is, is fine. They would run 400 grit sandpaper over everybody's runners to try to keep it even. Right. So you're free to like look around in there before park for me. Um, so I always like, look at what people are using, how they're polished and stuff like that. And then after park for me, you can go look again and everybody's runners should have a very noticeable rough, like strip. Cause they're usually mirror polished and then they hit them with 400 grit. And I was starting to notice like people's runners weren't getting affected by the sandpaper. I was, I was still telling my coaches and everything and, and I'm 
like, yeah, man, like people, somebody has like a new system to make like harden the runners or whatever, like spot hard. And I don't know what they're doing, but the result is that we're racing against people that are on runners that are polished to 250,000 grit and we're on 400 Hmm. and like, you cannot win that race. And at first kind of people were like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I went to the jury and then more people started to notice and, and they kind of more people complained. So they, they decided it takes forever. Anything like, like any sort of policy thing, like to change, it takes a while. So I had told everybody that I could tell, and I kept complaining every week. Um, but we were entering these races. We had no chance, like mm-hmm. zero chance of not, not even meddling, but like not even being in the top 10. It's really getting smoked. And I remember like, I was feeling pretty down and my teammates and I like kind of sat down and we were like, all right, like they knew what was going on. Cause I told them about the runner stuff. And yeah. I was like, guys, like I, I know this sucks. Like we are brutal. Like we're coming 15th, all these like people we've never even seen before beating us. And, uh, we've got two choices. Like we can, we can just like throw the air and like, just whatever, like try to enjoy ourselves over here and not care about the races or we can like be pissed pretty much four or five days out of the week. But then when it comes to race time, like we've still prepared during the week, like we can win the race and we go into the race, like we can win because eventually this is going to change and we want to be sharp as attack when it does so that we can show them how much this has been holding us back and that this rule change like needs to happen. Um, cause I was assuming they would like do a test race, changing the rules before they like fully change it. And that's what they did. They, they did a test race and we went from coming like 15th every, every time to fourth, I think, or fifth. And the results made sense. Like you look at the times and everything, everything made sense. And so the jury decided they're moving forward with this, this new rule change. And essentially what it was, they just took the sandpaper out because the sandpaper is really there in case people coat their runners, the sandpaper mm-hmm. will take it off. Okay. But if you're on fully race polished runners versus somebody on race polished runners with a coating, they only have a little, like a very small advantage. But if you're on race polished runners versus 400 grit, like whole different ball games, like yeah, a Honda Civic you know, versus yeah. a Ferrari, there's no chance. So they changed this super easy change for them to make. And, but it probably took forever. Yeah. It took the whole season. They changed it for the last race Yeah, and, and moving forward. So world championships, which is kind of pretty much if you're having a bad world cup season, you can turn it around to world champs and all of a sudden your season's a huge success. Cause it's what brings in the money for the program and right. OTP looks at that and all that stuff. That's probably like your Olympics in a non-Olympic year. Yeah. Basically yeah. it's what you're judged on because everybody assumes that that's the only race you can be hundred percent sure everybody's bringing their a game for right. it. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up getting a silver medal. It's my first world championship medal. And like, it was just this huge like moment where I was like, we had, we, we've put everything in place and we were getting held back by this rule. But at the same time, we were still putting everything in place. And that was the last race of the year. And I was like, we don't have to do anything else. Like we're ready for the Olympic season. We're ready to race at the games. We've got what we need. And now finally the rules are fair again. Like we're good. And I was like, what a great way to go into the off season. Plus like, you know, I was getting more money and stuff cause I got a world championship medal and it was just, 
everything was kind of like the momentum was really trending in my favor. And that was a, a really awesome way to go into the Olympic season. How crucial was it that you made that decision with your teammates? Hey, when you sat around and you're like, we could go in two directions, we could pack it in or continue training. Like we're elite athletes and getting ready for the Olympics, despite having the disadvantage. Yeah. It was so huge. Um, in a number of ways too. Like, I mean that, that world championship race was really close. It was in Germany. It's really hard for anybody except the German to win medals at world champs because they're very good on their home tracks and they have the best equipment. They're always fully ready to go. So I managed to stop the sweep. It was, it was Germans one, three and four. And, you know, I got in there in second and just from like so many points of view, it, it, if we hadn't gotten that medal, it would have made things a lot harder for us because now that we had done it, people knew that we could do it. And it's, it, it matters more than it should. I feel like, I feel like, you know, people should look at your potential a lot when they're thinking about like, you know, if you need new equipment or you need funding to do something or whatever, but the reality is you need to actually win something first before people will give you that stuff. Um, and so moving into the Olympic year, you know, if I wanted a new set of runners, like B210, like bought me some, they bought me a couple sets. Like it was, it was great. Like I, I could get what I needed and that's huge for your results and, and also your, your like mental performance. Cause you just know, like when you go into a race and you're like, I have everything I need to do well, like you're free and clear to just do your thing and the results take care of themselves. The battle is between you guys and the Germans. <laughs> yeah. All year. I mean, well, I guess all year. Yeah. yeah leading up to it. Right? It was, yeah, it was, was it that same sled? Yeah. So he was, he finished the year number two and I finished the year number one and we went back and forth a bunch of times. He had, he had a couple of rough races cause he switched sleds at the start of the year to like the latest German sled that they had come out with. Um, cause one of the other athletes was testing it and, and it turns out it was faster. But like when you switch sleds, it takes a little bit of time to really get dialed in with it. It's like, you know, it's like anything, getting a new race car or whatever, like you got to get a feel for it. So he didn't start the season as strong as he probably could have, but we were going back and forth, you know, I'd win, he'd win. I, we medaled in like five out of the eight races and we beat him in Germany on his home track in front of his home crowd on my birthday and beat a 14 year old start record in the process. And that was huge. Like, I feel like I won the Olympics on that day. Cause it was like, you don't beat that guy on that track. Like it doesn't happen. And when we did, people were like, man, these guys are for real this year. And the foreman was not as good. And that was weighing on me a little bit. Cause I knew something was up. Like it just, the results down the track didn't really add up, but in the two man, we were having, awesome results and like so much momentum. We just were having like an amazing time. Um, yeah, so it was, it was huge. Like just going into the games rank number one, like it was a lot of pressure for sure. Um, that and, expectation thing you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Earlier. And also knowing like not everybody knows that much about bobsleigh. They, they can see that I'm ranked number one, but like, I know that the guy who's ranked number two, has been world champion the last five years in a row. He's got a better sled than I do. And they usually start faster than us. 
So like he has all the advantages. Like if he and I drove the exact same run and we pushed the exact same time, he would beat me down because his sled is faster. Mm-hmm. And and they outstarted us by six hundreds or something at the games, which is massive. But yeah, just you know, consistency is king in in bobsleigh. And you know, we had like four flawless runs, and he had one really maybe maybe two but even they were had a little more mistakes than mine and yeah it was just it was cool though because standing on the line there like going into the fourth heat we're six hundredths of a second up and i i wasn't thinking about like oh i've been doing this sport for 12 years like literally everything comes down to this the next 50 seconds i was thinking like I already earned this medal over the last three years. Like I put in more work than anybody in the world, probably in bobsleigh. And like, I'm just, I'm just here to go get it. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. mine. And yeah, I was like just super calm and focused and, uh, yeah, it was great. Worked out. <laughs> Heading into that first run though, where would you say that pressure level was for you knowing that you've been battling this, this other German sled, the, you know, leading up to it. Yeah, I was feeling good. You know, we were, we were pretty fast in training. Um, I was really confident in the equipment decision I made too. It was really cold. Like it was unusual conditions for a race. And what's unusual just being that cold. Like it's, it's usually like zero to, minus eight probably is like common minus 10 is a bit cold it was like minus 20 when we were racing there um so i knew a lot of the strategies other teams were probably going to use with their runners just based on what they were running in training and mine was a little different and i thought like we were really fast in, in training on on that setup and i was really confident i had a little bit more control on on that set and there's two sections on that track, which are hugely important for your time. And the issue in the two man anyways, is like a lack of grip to get through those sections. And so like generally you want less grip cause it's faster right. the whole way down the track, but you, you need enough grip to get through those tough sections. And so I was like really confident I could make it through those sections. And I was also really confident that hardly anybody else would because they were like really hard and you don't, I knew the Korean team would cause they practice there all the time. But like you only get 40 runs before you start racing at the Olympics, like in your life, like on that mm-hmm. track. So like over the, the two years leading up, you get 40 runs and it's just really difficult. And I had like, not all the credits mine for sure. It was the other pilots on, on the Canadian team and the coaches, like we put together a really, really solid driving plan. I think we had it figured out before anybody else, except the Koreans, obviously. Um, and so like I had more time to just work on executing that plan cause we'd figured it out and I was just really confident I could do it like consistently run after run. And I, I did not think anybody else would do it four runs in a row except the Koreans. And so that was like our, our way that we could win the race. You're just, acing the hole. Hey? Yeah, exactly. So I was like, of course, like nerves for sure, like huge expectations on me, but I like, I believed I could win. People believed, people expected me to medal. I truly believed I could win. And yeah, I just, I had this 
great strategy for like my mental performance, my physical performance. And I was just like dialed in so prepared, like 2014 is like the exact opposite. I didn't even know what was going on. Like I was just racing, you know, like I thought you work hard in the gym, you work on your driving skills. That's it. That's how you win. Turns out there's a lot more to it. Ball game, man. And I was like, yeah, just so, so well prepared in 2018. And it's cool because you probably realize at that point that your belief was higher than people's expectations. Yeah, for sure. And like just the struggle of the last four years too, like made the victory so much sweeter. Like, you know, the German guy wins every race basically. Like he's, you know, probably since 2014, he had a horrible Olympics in 2014, but like he medaled in almost every race the whole four years leading up to 2018. It's just different. You expect to win, right? Like it's, whereas me, like I spent a lot of time coming like 15th and stuff and just being frustrated and whatever. And, you know, working really hard to turn it around and, and then so to win and be ranked number one in the world and come away with a gold medal, just massive, like huge. Because you guys tied though, did that take away some of the sweetness or it didn't matter at that point? No, it didn't matter at that point. And like, there's so much camaraderie between, between us. Cause we, we have a lot of mutual respect for each other and, yeah, I'm truly happy for him that, that he did that. And I'd be less happy if I came second, <laughs> he came first. But um, like I said before, the ceiling for performance for him is so much higher with like the sled he had and, and the starts those guys were getting that to be able to to tie and, and hold him off after he'd sort of, I don't know, maybe he had jitters or something for the first day because his runs weren't that good. But the second day, like he was, you know, more dialed in and like his times were way faster than mine. Like he climbed out of a pretty big hole because he's, he's, he's an amazing bobsledder and he has like, like not, not just the best sled, but like by far the best is way better than ours. Um, so yeah, I was, I was just super happy and proud and yeah, it doesn't matter. Nobody, nobody really cares that we tied. They're just happy that we got the gold. What do you think would be a legitimate tiebreaker though, if you had to have one? an extra run yeah maybe an extra run i'm not sure i imagine like yeah, you could go to the thousandth it measures to the thousandth like the clock so you could actually see legitimately who who was first but yeah i, I don't know tiebreaker is so tough because like in bob say like you you plan for two runs and like it's really hard to do extra ones like your equipment's in different shape and like it's the ice is like in different shape and you're mentally drained yeah it'd be hard I mean, probably the easiest thing would be fastest run, but I wouldn't want them to do that because he'd win that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think ties are fine. Like, it's so unlikely that when it happens, it's just kind of like, it's cool and it's like a historic moment. And, and yeah, I I think they should they should leave ties or just always measure to the thousandth, I guess. It's pretty, that's what Luge does. What were the next 72 hours like for you? Um, after you won gold yeah it's such a whirlwind like on the one hand like in i mean it's like the the greatest moment of your life like all this work all this effort you've put in all the stress all the pressure is like done and not only is it done like you did the best possible like you won the olympic games and like it almost it's like surreal to saying it even now is surreal like at the time like I remember me and Alex would like multiple times be like, dude, like we just, we won the Olympic games. Like we came first at the Olympics. Like 
both of us were just sort of like almost in in disbelief and it's you know not not at all because we didn't think we could do it just because of like the magnitude of the achievement we were like you know it'd be like winning the lottery or something you're like what it actually happened like it's so it's so hard to do so yeah it was a lot of like a lot of emotions a lot of just like your mind going into overdrive like wow this is so good like thinking about like just everything and seeing your family and you got to see them right away yeah she's right at the finish so um i saw my mom and my uncle like within five minutes probably of crossing the line all my friends from summerland were there people everybody's freaking out at the same time you're getting like ushered to like the medal ceremony and press conference and doping control and interviews and i didn't leave the bobsleigh track till like 1 30 in the morning it's like the race was pretty late like i think we finished at 11 but i was in like i had a doping control officer like following me around while I was doing these interviews and like we were doing live TV back in Canada and like I'm standing outside it's like minus 20 I'm freezing like doing this interview and um but just so much fun and and then like also just so weird like we got driven home in like this strange mobile home like RV Korean version of like our RVs and I was like we're sitting on this like couch in the back while like we're looking at our phones and like they're just blowing up beyond belief and like chris dornan our our media attache was with us and he's just like constantly like handing us his phone and like doing interviews is just like everybody you can think of and then and then you're back in the village and it's like one or two in the morning and you're more excited than you've ever been in your entire life and like you got to sleep because you get one day off and then you start training for four man and you really, you need to like get back in the mode for four man once you start. And you know, we had an eight hour media day the next day and getting back to the village is actually weird. Like everybody was really, really happy for us like on our team. Cause it very much was a team effort, but like they're also disappointed in their performances in, in some cases. Yeah. And yeah. so it's like, and like at the village you stay like in these weird like sort of apartments with like six athletes six or seven athletes and like some people are sharing rooms some people aren't and like it's just this little kind of weird group and you're like going to get some food and like everybody knows you just won an olympic gold medal and it's like just it's just huge thing like it's like so crazy and then eight hours of media the next day just non-stop for eight hours like yeah, it's not such a whirlwind. And then the next day, literally on the track doing four men and like having to switch right back to like, okay, like what's the final decision for equipment? Like all driving lines are like all different in four men sometimes, especially on that track. It's like trying to dial things back in. Like, and then, you know, like your four man team, the guys who weren't in the two man race are like, man, we can do this. Like we can get a medal. Like you guys did it in two man. And like, so you want to, like you really, really want to do it for them too. So like, you know, your whole team celebrating together versus just you and, and the guy that did two men. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's such a crazy 72 hours. Um, <laughs> did you have Alex with you for the four man as well then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So who, who did you have for that four man? Um, so it was me and Alex, um, from the two men. And then we were joined with, by, uh, Jesse Lumsden and Shay Smith for the four man. And then what did that preparation, mental preparation look like for you guys 
heading into the four-man races? Well, everybody is was a pretty veteran athlete. Shea had been, he was new to bobsleigh. It was actually his first year, but he is an Olympic 100-meter and 200-meter sprinter. Um, he's actually on that team in 2012 that won the bronze medal and then got it taken away because hmm. the guy ran on the line. So, like, this guy's probably, he's probably the most gifted athlete I've ever really, like, spent a lot of time with. Like, he's so fast and, and like, powerful. He doesn't look, like, super strong, but he's so strong. Hmm. Um, so he was really, really good and so fast, and he's on the back of the sled. Um, Jesse obviously, like, played super high-level football, broke, like, every record, and this was his third Olympics as well. Um, and super powerful. Yeah, super powerful, veteran athlete, like, super strong mental game. Alex, like, obviously, just coming off of a two-man gold, gold medal, medal like, you know, he can do it. <laughs> he can perform under pressure. And the weird thing for me going into that race was, like, I felt like everybody, including the coaches and the athletes, were, like, overlooking the fact that we were just not that fast in four-man all year. We looked fast sometimes because we we were starting like ridiculously fast, like within a hundredth of the start record at every track and like beating other teams by five, six, seven hundredths, which is massive on the start in bobsleigh. And some tracks are short. So you kind of hold on to that lead. But I was noticing in longer tracks, we were like really, really slow at the bottom. And I thought it was either like an equipment or aerodynamics thing. Um, cause like in four man, the way the people in the back sit is really important. All those guys are like six, four to six, six. So they don't fit as well as some teams. And so I just thought like, I was like, man, like we, even in training, like I was like, we're just not like that fast. And the expectations were really high cause of the two man result. And I like, I drove pretty well, probably not as well as the two men on that track. It was really but two man and four man sleds are, are very different. Like they almost have like the feel is different. Yeah. Well, it's, there's actually like mechanical things in the front that, um, it's all like relatively the same, but the angles can be very different and they change how the sled reacts to your steering inputs like, like drastically. So hmm. it's essentially like the easiest way to explain it is the two man sled wants to understeer. Like it doesn't really want to grip in the front and the four man sled mine anyway wants to oversteer so there's like tons of grip in the front and the back like wants to kick out all the time so it was really like even if you're not making super visible mistakes in the track like having that huge change in steering like i could be doing a little bit too much or a little bit too little and it not really maybe look that bad but it's still slowing you down um and then you know combined with just we didn't have that top speed all the time going down i wasn't all that surprised with we were sitting in fourth most of the race and we like if we had everything dialed in as far as equipment and like probably seating position we probably would have been in first or second because we were starting so fast and i wasn't all that surprised i was doing my best to try to move us up but it's just kind of too late at that point like if you don't have the speed you don't have the speed and there's yeah. not really a whole lot you can do about it um and yeah so it was it was a disappointing result for for the team for sure like they were 
you know, they wanted to get a medal and, and I wanted to get another medal and get one with them as well. But, um, unfortunately, like in the format, we just weren't as far along as far as like the whole setup. And also too, like that team was our first year pushing together. A lot of, a lot of people have the kind of thought that you want to have the fastest start possible, no matter what. I really think it's it's a lot better to have a more balanced team where you're going to have a really good riding position. You're going to start, like, you need to be close to the top. Right, um, yeah. But... You don't need to have the best start. Yeah, yeah. but you, you got you to gotta have that speed down the track. It makes such a big difference. And it's hard to, like, it's hard to get in that position with the guys in your sled when you don't have that much practice, especially when you're that tall. Like, it was, maybe it's not even possible, like, with mm. guys that big. Yeah. Um, but it's it's uncomfortable to be in that position in the sled, and especially if you don't if you if you don't really believe that it makes a big difference, you're maybe not going to fight for that position, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was it was a shame. I mean, obviously for me, the Olympics were and Alex, the Olympics were a big success. Um, but it would have been amazing to have you know the double medal and and uh, with have the other guys get a medal too. You talked earlier about how you needed to be familiar with all the different tracks in the world which was the hardest track for you to master? Well, it's probably considered one of the easiest tracks in the world, but, um, and the most fun, this one in, in Switzerland, St. Moritz, like I just, I've, I go there lots and I just like, I'm never really that good there. I don't really know why to this day. Like I've done okay there. I've come fourth. Um, but I've come like 25th, like multiple times. And like, there's no real reason like that I can see, like I'm driving down and I'm like, this is pretty good. Like, but there's clearly like a section that I'm not doing properly. So I would mm-hmm. say that one. And like, traditionally you asked another Bob said, they're probably not going to say that track. Cause it's like one of the easier tracks. They're like, what's wrong with you? It's easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My, and, and then like on the opposite end, like all the, tracks that people are like scared of and are super difficult like i pick them up quickly and they're my favorite tracks and my most successful ones like the whistler one yeah yeah exactly Hmm. so i just wanted to ask you a few questions around leadership uh and i guess partnerships with your your teammates in the sled um does leadership look different in a two as you're a pilot for a two-man versus a four-man yeah i mean it's kind of i mean the way it works is you you have your four-man team and generally the best guy from that from from those guys does two-man with you so you're very much like a crew and you do everything together like all the sled maintenance and and work like we have a, a race mechanic and he helps with like the difficult stuff and like the very technical things but kind of the like grunt work or whatever we do ourselves and it's pretty time consuming so you spend a lot of time with these guys and usually you train with your crew as well like because you kind of want to be like a unit and and you know you hang out with them and stuff as well so it's very much like the pilot is the leader um in two man it's just you know the pilot's leader and the brakeman is, is the brakeman and you have very very different jobs equally as important um but you you have to be like separate in a lot of cases like i i walk the track with the other pilots before training and the brakeman's job is making sure the sled has the right setup and you know working with the mechanic and stuff and getting the sled to the top of the track and like making sure everything's good to go 
Um, and in format, it's the same thing, but you almost kind of need a leader of the, of the crew as well to kind of, you know, make sure everything's going well, like, especially if you have like newer guys, less experienced guys on the team. Um, but generally it's, it's pretty much the same. It's just the format is kind of like, it feels like more of a team sport cause there's, you know, more people, everybody's involved. Um, the two man is like a little bit more just kind of, you know, you and one other guy and it's a bit separate, but is it your job though, to kind of calm people down if maybe they're a little over anxious or overexcited race day, stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, ultimately what you want is everybody to have their own strategy so that they're wherever they need to be going into the race. But yeah, you, as the pilot, you need to make sure everybody's good to go. And it's more your leadership kind of during the week than at the race. Mm. That's more important though, because at the race, everybody should be ready and good to go. And if they're not, you're, you're probably going to be the one that helps turn things around. But as a pilot, usually you want to be very focused and not really have that much contact with your crew leading up to it. Like you're getting kind of in your headspace and going over the track and stuff like that. And you want to like kind of touch base just before you go. Like sometimes you'll do like a couple practice hits, we call them like, so you practice the timing before you hit the sled. But yeah, you really want everybody to have their own thing and, and be like zoned in the way they need to be. Cause it is different for everybody too. I loved your analogy earlier where you talked about being in the sled. It's kind of like being in a dryer on the spin cycle and it, it's obviously really loud in in the sled. What does communication look like in it or two or four man bobsled? Um, because it is so loud. Is there a lot of chatter going on or is it mostly just like, uh, it's dead silent most of the time. Okay. Um, yeah, you can't really talk to people really hard. You have to yell really loud for anybody to hear you, especially because everybody's got helmets on. Um, the biggest like communication that goes on in there is, I mean, at the start we have like commands and whatever, and then jumping in, like you like feel the guy behind you, like find his, his like spot and you need to kind of like drop down as like a unit. If one guy in front of you drops down too early, then the guy behind you can't get in. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, like, honestly, the biggest communication is like when I nail a really difficult section and the crew knows it, they like cheer, That's awesome. <laughs> which is pretty funny. That's kind of unique to this team. Like we're, we're the team I, I had this past season. Um, awesome guys, like get along super well. We hang out all the time and, um, they're really fun and enjoying themselves. And, and that's one of the things that, that I kind of mentioned when they got on my team, like, you know, we're, we have the privilege of traveling around the world and competing for our country. And, you know, you can, you can get really stressed out in this sport. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's a lot of work, but like, if you have fun, you're going to do well. And if you do well, you're going to have more fun. So we need to get in that position. And I, we've really been rolling with, with this crew. Like we had a great season this year. It was kind of it was a weird schedule we did. We didn't do all the world cups. Um, our coaches kind of wanted to do this different thing. And, um, but it kind of like brought us even closer together as a team. So we're kind of like grinding through these weird development races that we shouldn't have really been in. Like we were just whipping everybody and like, we weren't really, nobody really wanted us there because yeah. we we're like number one in the world and we we're like beating up on these younger kids and stuff. But, but anyway, there's a reason for it. Um, 
but yeah, we had a great time. We got tons of good results and like, that's, that's the sweet spot really. So now Justin, you've been to three Olympics. Describe to me what it's like branding yourself and how that concept or that area of being an athlete has changed or evolved over, you know, three quads for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always, I've always found it difficult to kind of, you know, I'm not, I'm not great at like marketing myself, so to speak. Um, especially like it's a bit easier now. Like once you kind of have this kind of success, especially at the Olympics, it's very like kind of, you know, public event. A lot of people see it and know about it. Um, you're a bit, bit more in the spotlight. So people get to know you and, you know, hopefully they like me, you know, things have been going pretty well. I get invited to a lot of events and stuff. So that's, that's helped a lot. Like before you sort of have to like kind of go around and tell people how good you are because they haven't seen it before. Mm. And I really struggle with that. Like it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm like a, an action guy, not a talk guy. So, you know, I remember even to this day, this could be true. Like there's people who are like nowhere near as at, at the level that, that some athletes are including myself and they have, you know, huge sponsorships and stuff. Cause they're just like really good at talking about how good yeah, they are. Selling and stuff themselves, like that. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, now having like a lot of brands like or companies put a lot of emphasis on like your social media and stuff like that. And just from the games and over the years and, and, uh, I've tried to be like pretty active on it. I've, I've gotten like better at that. And, uh, yeah, but I don't know, like I never really sat down and was like, what's my brand? Like, I'm just very much myself and I kind of do my thing and I'm not like real flashy and I don't really talk about how sweet I am or like try to really convince people to get on board with me. But, Mm -hmm. um, a number of companies have and, and, uh, yeah, so hopefully my brand is kind of, you know, typical kind of Canadian, like humble working hard and, and, uh, you know, generally nice. And, but like, you know, when it gets down to business, like a killer too, but social media has really helped out. Hey. Yeah. Big time. Cause it's just like you, people can get an idea of who you are just by looking there, you know, or you're like public image anyway, I guess. Um, but with my social media, it's very much been like, it's, it's my athlete life and also my personal life. Like I, I kind of, I feel like that's the idea. Like when Instagram kind of first started, it was like a way to see what goes on with your favorite athletes or celebrities, like when they're not doing what you know them for. Um, so I've always been like kind of going down that road. Like I obviously put like pictures of bobsleigh and that's like a lot of it or like training and stuff like that. But also like the vacations I take, like other sports I play, like mountain biking, golf, whatever, and different events I go to just so like people can get to know who I am. And I feel like that's how, you get companies to be like, Oh, like, man, we feel like we know this, this guy, like he seems like a cool guy. Like we don't need to, you know, get an agency to hunt somebody down that we want to work with. Like this guy seems cool. And that's so far, that's how it's worked out for me. So it's, it's been, been pretty good. Anything you want to plug or promote any shout outs? Um, well, obviously my main, main sponsors, Lululemon, B210, RBC and, uh, HBC grateful for the support and um yeah i'm gonna keep winning medals together awesome thank you so much for coming on story island my man it was great hearing your story and uh yeah all the different experiences that you've gone through my pleasure thanks for having me i appreciate it
Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading the Play. For more content, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and you can also download other episodes at sportcalgary.ca. Be sure to check out the Facebook page, Reading the Play, and to stay up to date on latest RTP news, including new episodes, make sure to follow on Instagram at Reading the Play and myself, Jeremy Lee, at Legacy. I really hope there's a piece of Justin's story that impacts, inspires, and ignites you to help you win your day. And as always, I'll catch you in the next episode.